Everybody doing okay? You guys doing all right? Good. Everyone upset because we're like the remnant of people that didn't go on vacation for the three-day weekend? Is that, is that what's going on? Hey, glad you guys are here. We're, um, we're back in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been working through this for uh, not too long. It's not that long of a book, but uh, we're in chapter seven and eight today. So I'm gonna do what I've only done one other time since I've been doing this church is I'm going to summarize a chapter. I'm gonna summarize chapter seven. And if you go back and try to read chapter seven, you'll see exactly why I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize this. There's 600 names in there and I don't know how to pronounce any of them. So <clears throat> it's not for a lack of trying. It's just my mouth will not say certain words. I have a degree in English. I studied Russian for four years and studied Spanish for four years. Yeah, ya gavro puroski, ochi ploka. Very little Russian. But um, there are some words I just cannot say, and I'm learning uh, that Hebrew names are, are some of those. So in, in the risk of sounding, um, I don't know, weird, I'm gonna say those guys a couple of times today because there's these, these clumps of men where I cannot pronounce any of their names. So I'm gonna say these guys and those guys. And that's not because I'm trying to skip over parts. I just don't wanna look like an idiot in front of all of you guys. So yeah, isn't, isn't that a shame? Um, I do it enough without trying to pronounce weird names. So if you haven't been with us, let me tell you what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. So when Savut taught us a couple of weeks ago in chapter six, the book of Nehemiah is, Nehemiah is pretty simple. What it, is a, what it is about is a Jewish man who was exiled to what is modern day Iraq. Uh, back then it was called the area of Babylon during the Persian empire, okay? Many Jews were exiled out during this time, but there was a bunch that were still in the area of Jerusalem. Nehemiah, who worked for the king, Artaxerxes, had found out that his city was in ruins. So he was allowed to go back to help rebuild his city. Specifically, Nehemiah's job was to rebuild the wall around the city to make it a safe place for people to live. And, and that's what chapter six, we see the completion of the wall. And Savut, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about the completion of the wall. And even though they completed the wall and they did this really great, amazing task in a very short amount of time, there was opposition. And we kind of learn a life lesson. Whenever we do anything of any greatness, there's always going to be opposition, right? But we see this in chapter six, that there are people who are uh, uh, trying to cause uh, tension and stress and even threaten the people of God and Nehemiah as they rebuild this wall, but we see that he made it. And so what Savut talked about is if we're going to complete what God wants us to do, we have to focus on God and we have to pray for God to give us endurance. So many times in the New Testament, we hear guys like Paul say that we need to have endurance, right? Long suffering, that it's like a marathon. We have to keep pushing forward. That's what we talked about in chapter six. Now, as we get into chapter seven and chapter eight, here are gonna be the two big things we're gonna talk about today. And they're both pretty substantial. The first one is, is we're gonna talk about identity. Why? Because at the end of chapter eight, we're gonna see that the Jewish people celebrate this certain festival and the festival helps remind them of who they are in God, their identity. So we live in a culture nowadays that has made identity in everything an idol. So we need to discuss a little bit this morning our identity. We're also gonna talk about how we build the walls around us to protect ourselves and others. Not literal walls, metaphorical, spiritual walls of prayer, walls of the word of God, walls of obeying the word of God, that these things set up a barrier to protect ourselves, and they protect those around us. That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today, 
Okay, all right? So if you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. We're right between the book of Ezra and Esther is the book of Nehemiah. When you walked in, you should have got a notes handout. Everything will be in there. Everything will be on the screens. Um, if you have your smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes. Everything's right there. Very, very easy to follow, okay? So I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna summarize chapter seven. We'll get in, we'll read all of chapter eight, and we'll break it down. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. There's some, actually, there's some, some pretty neat things to pull uh, from both of these chapters, but, but um, in particular, chapter eight. There's some good stuff in there. So let's pray. We'll get into this and um, see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, Lord, we thank you, God. Um, Lord, we appreciate this time that we have together right now, God. Not everywhere in the world do they have the freedom and the opportunity to do what we're doing right now. So, Lord, we appreciate this time, God, and we pray that we make the best of it. Lord, we pray not only for our church. We pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those cities, God. Lord, we pray for all the great nonprofits we work with, Lord. We pray for all the uh, work that we're getting to do in Uganda, Africa right now and what Tara's doing over there. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we just pray, um, God, as we study your word, Lord, that you would just keep your hand on us, God. Draw us closer to you and we pray that everything we do today, that it honors you, God. Lord, we pray for what's going on in the Middle East. We pray for what's going on in our own country. Um, a lot of confusion, very tumultuous right now, God. So we just need you as much as we've ever needed you, if not more. So Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So what chapter seven is about is Nehemiah went back, he refortified the walls of the city and he had to make it a safe place for all of the exiles to come back. The people who had left the area, make it a safe place for them to come back. So in chapter six, they finished the wall. In chapter seven, they put the doors and the gates around the wall and Nehemiah, because all these people are gonna be coming back, he needs help running the, the, the area. He is the governor, but he needs some people to help him. I don't know if he chose two guys who just have really, really similar names on purpose, but he chose Hanani and Hananiah, and these two guys become kind of his sidekicks, okay? One was his brother, and one was more of a military leader. Now, all joking aside, it wasn't just a random pick. These men were good men. In fact, what it says in chapter seven, they were better than most people, right? I love that. These were men of high integrity. These were men of sacrifice. These were men that were not only intelligent, smart, but they were actually, uh, uh, also wise, very wise people. And they lived in the fear of God and they put the people first. So what we see in this white paragraph here is basically a good working definition of what a good leader should be. And we rarely see this in our culture, and that's not a shot at anyone in particular. We just don't see this a lot in our society. That what a good leader does is they put the people they are leading in front of them. They are working for them, right? They're sacrificial in their leadership. Another thing we don't see as much, but we should, is that good leaders understand where their authority comes from. Romans chapter 13 says that all of our authority is given to us by God, right? That doesn't mean that every leader is good, but everyone that has any kind of influence is because God has allowed them to have influence. And if we understand that, we understand that our influence is to be steward. What that means is, is we are just borrowing it. God has let us have it. We are to use that influence wisely and for the good of those around us, okay? That's what made these men special. 
And so what they did, they completed the wall and the wall was just the first step. This is very important. The wall was just the means to create a safe environment so people could come in and get to know their creator better and get to know each other better. The long-term goal was to make a, a vibrant society, a healthy city, a place where the people flourished and again, grew in their relationships. And quite frankly, this is essentially what the church should be doing. I talked about this last week at the vision service. I hope you were at that. If you weren't, please go back and watch it. But what we are to do at this church is to create an environment, right? To where people can come in and they can feel safe to grow, not only in their, in their relationship with God, but in their relationship with other people. And the walls that the church should be building are again, not literal walls, they're spiritual walls. I talked about this a lot last week that what we have to do in order to make sure that this is a place where absolutely anyone can come in, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the mistakes you made, regardless of the lifestyle you're living, whatever, that you can come into this place. The first wall that we have to build is we have to love people, right? All people, people that we disagree with, people that have made awful mistakes, people that have done bad things, people who have insecurities, whatever the case may be. We love all people and we have to hold on to that tightly. But the other thing we cannot let go of, the other wall we must build is we must stand on the truth of the word of God. Someone amen me out there, please. Someone, okay, thank you. So what we have to hold on to is this. We love all people, we welcome all people. That's one part of the wall. The other part is we cannot compromise our integrity when it comes to the word of God. And when we do that, we create a safe space where people can come in and say, I'm addicted to pornography. I struggle with this. I struggle with this addiction. I'm greedy. I'm lustful. I'm whatever the case may be. And we don't bring condemnation. This is a safe place, right? For us to grow in our relationship with God and grow in our relationship with each other. So if you ever read the Bible, there are some parts of the Bible that are, I'm not gonna say boring, but not as fun to read as other parts. Chapter seven of Nehemiah is one of those chapters. There's a lot of names. And when we read the Bible and we come across all these names, right? Like Pashur's descendants were 1,247. Why do I care about that? The reason why we care is, is twofold. One, this is a census. And anyone who is going to run a city needs to know who is in the city and what resources are in the city. So it's not just the people who are there. They also take a, a census of the livestock and the resources that were in the area. So that helps Nehemiah run the city more efficiently. So that makes a little bit of sense. The second reason why lists like this in the Bible are important is it gives the Bible historical validity. The Bible is not just a lot of fun stories with good morals. The Bible is real people who went through real events in real time, right? They, this is history. This is real stuff. And lists like chapter seven of Nehemiah show us, and it gives the Bible validity. Another thing that's interesting, when they brought all these people in, it was very common in Nehemiah's day, when you were rebuilding a capital city like Jerusalem, it was real common to call all the people from the rural areas and, and ask them to come move into the city. And it would repopulate the city and it would build up the strength of the capital of a nation. That's what's happening in chapter seven. 
What we also see at the very end of chapter seven is Nehemiah, Nehemiah makes a list of people that financially contributed, that gave money, right, for the rebuilding of the community. Again, talked about this a lot last week at the vision service. This church gives a ton of money and therefore we are able to give a ton of money away. We give away a quarter of everything that comes in now. Next year, it'll be somewhere in the 40, 50% range that we will be able to give away. You'd know that if you were at the vision service last week. And we would give away uh, next year. And that's great. And so what we learn at the end of Nehemiah 7 is that the people of God should be open-handed with their finances. Not so the clergy can get rich and we can build monstrosity buildings, but so we can build up the community. So we can plant more churches and help out the homeless and help out people in Africa and El Salvador and other places like that, that we can do these things. Because just like our influence is given to us by God, our affluence is given to us by God as well. It all belongs to him. So we are just borrowing it for a time, okay? All right, let's get into chapter eight. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And on the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, women, and all who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. It was a stage. Some guys were on his right, and to his left were some other guys. Ezra, I told you it was coming. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, amen, amen. And then they knelt down low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's very interesting. I'll get to that here in a second, okay? So if you weren't with me at the beginning of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra used to be one book. They were combined. They weren't separated. So Ezra is greatly connected to the story of Nehemiah. So he shows up a couple of months before everyone settled into Jerusalem. And this is interesting. Ezra had been sent by the Persian king, the same king that sent Nehemiah. And Ezra was sent by the Persian king to go into Jerusalem and reestablish the law, the teachings of God, okay? Written down by Moses. Now, what makes that interesting is King Artaxerxes, who sent Ezra, was not a believer in the same God. But he understood that where the first five books of the Bible were taught, well, it's called the Torah, those people were peaceful and they lived in harmony better than anywhere else. So what that means is this, even a pagan king understood that the teachings of the Bible work practically in society. If you have any friends that are, that are level-headed atheists, agnostics of other beliefs, whatever the case may be, if you look at the principles and laws of the Bible, they work in society. Maybe they would disagree with the first commandment, which is love the Lord your God above all over God because they may not believe in a God. But all the rest of the 10 commandments, things like stealing, murdering, wanting your neighbor's wife sexually, all these things, if we abide by those things, we have a better society. 
Again, if you weren't here last week, you didn't hear me say this, but this church gave over 30,000 Bibles to Russia in the month of January. All those Bibles went into the public school system in Russia. Do you wanna know why? Not because Russia is just the most God-fearing nation in the world. The Russian government understands that when they teach small children the Bible, they grow up to become better citizens. It's the same thing with King Artaxerxes, right? So we learn that a society has to be built on biblical principles, right? They work. They, in the most practical means, work. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they assembled the men, women, and children who were old enough to understand. They brought them to what is called the water gate, and they listened to Ezra read the whole first five books of the Bible, the Torah, right? This happened in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar year, which would have been the most religious time of the year, all their feasts and the day of atonement, all these things were going on during that time. And Ezra gets up and reads the Bible for five to seven hours. And it says that the people listened attentively, right? In American church, if it goes over an hour and a half, we're like, nah, I just don't have the bandwidth for this, right? We just can't, we just, heads explode, brains on the wall, the whole nine yards, right? It's terrible. And so Ezra gets up there, <laughs> reads for five to seven hours, the people are listening attentively and he picks a really interesting location. You would think they would do it in the church. Why not do it in the temple, right? Instead, he did it at the water gate. That's where they would literally all go and draw their water to drink and bathe and everything else. And why, why not do it at the temple? The reason he didn't do it at the temple and the reason he did it at a place where they would just do their day-to-day -day activities, this is so important, he wanted the people to learn that if we just go to a building once a week, but we do not live out the instructions in this book, that's just a building and it doesn't save your soul. Everyone good, right? We think that going to church gets us to heaven and it absolutely does not. It's important. You need to be here, right? This is part of it. But if we don't have a relationship with God, this building is gonna do nothing for your eternal soul. Nothing, nothing whatsoever. And that's why Ezra, pulled them aside and taught them the word of God away from the temple. Interesting, interesting stuff. Now, this is my favorite part of this, this kind of opening sequence that we just read. When Ezra opened the Bible, the people stood up in reverence, right? They revered the word of God. After giving thanks to God, the fancy word for that is a benediction, the people lifted up their hands and shouted, amen, amen. And then in humility, they got down on their faces and they prayed to God on their face, right? On the ground. Now it's interesting, we often say, right? Well, I'm just not a demonstrative person. I just don't think it's that exciting. I, I, I think it's irreverent to act that way in church, which is interesting because all throughout the Bible, they acted very demonstrative in their worship, even in church. But it's funny, whenever I hear a Christian say, well, I'm just not a demonstrative person, you are when UT finally wins a game, right? <laughs> Pretty demonstrative then. Pretty vocal then. We're pretty vocal at concerts, right? Lift our hands at concerts, but we won't lift our hands in the presence of God. Guys, I mean, come on. I just, we just wanna call a tree what it is. And so whenever people say, well, that's just not my personality. Hey, it is when it comes to politics. You get pretty up, 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 uproared about that, right? But we don't wanna be vocal about our faith. We don't wanna show God. I'm gonna tell you what, your posture when you're in the presence of God does say a lot about your relationship with God. When we truly understand that we're in the presence of the, of the creator that spoke the universe into existence, man, every once in a while you need to be on your face. 
Um, when, we, when we have been saved by grace from all the awful evil things we do, it's not a big deal to lift your hands and thank God for that. We should do that just naturally. And your posture, our posture, right, says a lot about how we really think about God. I keep thinking this guy's picking his nose every time I go to this slide. <laughs> I picked the picture. I, I guess I should have done a better job with that. <laughs> So there were some men who were Levites and they explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still, since today is holy, don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. There's some really good stuff in this too. Okay, so the Levites were the ones that were basically the pastors of the Jewish community. They did all the religious work, okay? They're the pastors. And what their job was to do was to simply read the scripture and explain the scripture. Now, I'm not trying to be super snarky with this. Um, this is what pastors are supposed to do. And I think in the United States, a lot of pastors have forgotten that that's what their main job should be. It's not to be an entertainer. It's not to write a bunch of books. There's, it's not to put on a show. It is to read the word of God and explain what it means to the people who want to know it. That's what the Levites did, okay? That's all their role was. And so as Ezra and the Levites were explaining the first five books of the Bible, the law, this is interesting that people started crying, <laughs> They're weeping. So this isn't just like a little, a little tear trickling down. These are people like buckled over, mourning, wailing. Why were they so upset? The more that Ezra and the Levites explained the Bible, the more they realized they had neglected the Bible. And it was upsetting to them. Now look, that's, that's a good thing. When we read the word of God, and if we realize that we have been negligent of the word of God, it should bother us, Right? If you're married in here and you find out, you know, after years and years that your wife has been unhappy with something you've been doing, like you should be like, oh my gosh, if I would have known, I would have done it differently. I'm so sorry, right? That's how they felt. They found out that they were not treating their husband, God, right, the way they should. So here's the thing. Sin should disturb us. But Ezra and the Levites said, don't cry right now. It was an inappropriate time because they were not focusing on, at that time, how much bad they had done. They were focusing on that even though they had done bad, God had given them back their city. God was gracious, God was good, God was providing for them, so let's celebrate that. So Ezra told the people, let's, let's have a celebration because the joy of the Lord is where we get our strength. So again, should sin bother us? Yes, it should bother us. But the fact that God loves us even though we make mistakes, that Jesus Christ died on the cross even though we were sinners and knew all the evil things we would do, the fact that God is gracious, that he gives us the gift of joy, right? That we have an invitation to have a fresh start. 
So we have to do this balancing act when it comes to repentance and grace. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian in Germany during World War II, he said, we have to be careful as Christians because if we know that God is gracious and we keep sinning because we know God is gracious, he said, that makes grace cheap, cheap grace, right? The apostle Paul said this, he said, should we go on sinning because God is gracious? He said, absolutely not. So we have to understand on one hand that God is a gracious God that is quick to forgive, but we have to address sin. We have to ask God to forgive us for the things we've done wrong. We have to do both of these things, okay? We have to balance these things out. So look at this. The people left and they basically threw a huge party because they understood the word of God. And they understood the goodness of God because of the word of God. It brought them comfort and joy. So here's the thing. They went from crying because their feelings were so hurt because they found out how bad they had been. Do you know what a big misconception is with people that sometimes come into this place? I will read this book and I will say things like, it is wrong for you to have sex outside of marriage. And someone will hate me for that and leave like a really happy review on Google with one star. And this guy's the worst guy in the world. He told me that I was doing this. I don't know if you guys know this. I didn't write this book. I had nothing to do with the creation of this book. All I do is read it and then just kind of affirm what it says and fill in some blanks with history and stuff. I didn't write any of it. So here's the thing. We can come into this place and hear that we have fallen short, that we may even be falling short right now, and we can get offended, and we can say, oh, how dare that guy tell me that, or how dare God tell me how to live, the creator of everything? How dare, right, all this stuff. We can either get super offended, or we can accept the fact that we have all fallen short and that we're never going to stack up and that is the most liberating news you'll ever hear. Listen, you're all dirtbags. The Bible says we've all fallen short. All of us in this room, all of you at home, all of us have messed up and made mistakes. That's not bad news though, because we don't get to heaven on how good we are. We get to heaven on how good a perfect savior is. That's the best thing you'll ever hear. And so the world tells you the exact opposite. Look inside yourself. And the more we as a society keep looking inside of ourselves, the more domestic abuse goes up, the more suicide goes up, the more hopelessness and depression and anxiety goes up because the Bible says there is nothing good in us apart from God. So when we just accept the fact that we suck sometimes and know that God is amazing, we can walk in freedom. That's why we need a savior. That is good news. That is good news. God loves us so much that we are on a road to not only temporary destruction, but eternal destruction. And God loves us so much to say, stop doing what you're doing. Salvation is not ambiguous in the Bible. Turn from your ways and go God's ways. And it tells you exactly how to do it. So we have the option. Do we get offended by that? Or do we say, God, thank you so much for making the path clear? right? Thank you so much for loving me so much to give me the clear direction. And even though I have fallen short, Romans says he died for us even when we were sinners. That is good, 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 good news, right? <laughs> All right. We're almost done. Thank God, right? We're almost done. <laughs> On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and the Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. First five books of the Bible. 
They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. The people went out and brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on the rooftops, courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days and on the eighth day there was an assembly according to the ordinance. Now what in the heck is this talking about? So what happened is you had the day when Ezra read the Bible for like five, seven hours. The next day, a smaller group of people got together and they said, let's really, really study the first five books of the Bible. Now, as they were studying, they were in the book of Leviticus. They get to the 22nd chapter and they're reading about the festivals that were about to go on. And they're like, wait a second, we have missed something in here. So they were already celebrating the festival, but they weren't celebrating it 100% correctly. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this festival. Uh, Sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's called the Feast of Shelters. It's all the same thing. It's talking about a little portable tent, basically, that they would make, a tabernacle. It was a seven-day festival, right? Found in 23, not 22, to remember the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, and it foreshadowed the Savior. We now know that the Savior is Jesus Christ. It's the last of all their festivals, and it reminded them that God always provided for them. Now, you may actually meet some Christians that still do stuff like this, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. We are not obligated to do things like this, but it's not wrong if you have a Christian friend that wants to celebrate these festivals, but, but we don't have to, okay? A, we're not Jewish, and B, we already have the second covenant. We know who Jesus Christ is. Uh, you may be Jewish in here, but, but uh, most of us are not, right? So here's what we learn from this. Once the new info was discovered in the Bible, they immediately responded to the new information. It even says, right when they, they're reading it, imagine reading it and they're like, yes, we celebrate. Wait a second. We're supposed to literally make these little tents and live in them during that week? We haven't been doing that. So they said, tell everyone, right? Start gathering branches. I don't know why it's funny. Leafy trees, find some leafy trees and we gotta make these huts and we gotta put these things together and we gotta do this now. We gotta celebrate it the right way. And though the Jews had not done it for a long time, once they recognized that they had been negligent to the scripture, they changed. Now, the point is this. If you've never read the works of the Apostle Paul, he is an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> he, he, he steps on everyone's toes, right? He will list something that you and I have done that is wrong. And so when you read through the New Testament, what we have to ask ourselves is this. Maybe you've never read through the New Testament, but let's say you're reading through, I don't know, let's say 1 Corinthians chapter six. That's a good one that offends us all. When you read through that chapter and you're like, oh no, I have been doing what he tells me not to do. We have a choice in that, in that moment. Do I try to rationalize it away or that was written a long time ago or, what do we, or do we respond to it immediately and change the way we think and act, right? 
That's what we have to ask ourselves when it comes to the word. Now, what happened when they obeyed the word? The reason why the Jews would have all these festivals and feasts and do all this stuff is it reminded them of their identity in God. It reminded them of who they belong to. God has provided for us. God has, he has delivered us from slavery. God has done all these amazing things. We are the followers of God. We are the people of God. And when they obeyed and lived out the word of God that was miraculously given to them, they were joyful. Why? Because they better understood who they were. Listen to that in the context of American culture in 2021. We have a whole culture that is trying to find their identity in everything. We have made identity an idol. We find it in the color of our skin, our political affiliation, our gender, our sexual preference, how much money we have in the bank, where we went to school, all these things. We're trying to find our identity. And the Bible lets us know that the only way we will ever find true fulfillment and joy and contentment is when we identify with the only thing that we are actually made in the image of. If you've never heard me say this before, you and I are the only thing in the universe that is made in the image of God. Did you know that? Do you know you are the only thing in the universe that has the breath of God breathed into them? You are a unique creation. There is nothing like you in the universe, nothing. You are the only thing that resembles the creator, you, I, right? That's amazing. And when we live in the revelation, that I am connected to the architect of everything that's ever been made, that if I give my life to him, that I'm in his family, that I'm adopted as a son or a daughter. When we live in that, you don't have to get all that affirmation on social media. When we live in that, young lady, you don't have to dress a certain way to impress all these guys, right? Man, you're royalty. You are the daughter of the king of kings, right? You don't have to fight and squabble over, over stupid things and prove yourself to other people. Because when we know who we are in God, we know that we don't have to impress anyone except for him. We live completely different. It changes everything. It changes everything. And identity was a big issue. So let's go back to the start for a second. If we are going to live in our identity in God, we've got to have proper walls. We talked about before, listen, this has to be a place, and guys, we do a really, really good job of this. We're, we're pretty open and honest around here. This has to be an environment to where if you are struggling with materialism or lust or greed or, man, if you got wasted last night and you're really feeling terrible and remorseful about it this morning, this is the kind of place where you can come in and you can tell someone. No one's gonna condemn you. No one's gonna look down on you because a lot of us have been in those ditches too, right? And so this has to be a safe place. We do a pretty good job about that. Let me turn that back on us as individuals though. This may be a good safe, for, safe place for people to confess and grow in their relationship with God and with each other. Let me ask you this though. At your work, at your school, are you a safe place for people to grow in their relationship with God and with others? What do I mean by that? In the office, are we known as kind of the rock, right? Are we known as the one that if someone is struggling with their divorce that they're going through, that they can come to you? Man, I'm struggling. Can you just help me? Even if they don't believe, they know that they can go to you, right? Or do we gossip with everyone else in the office and therefore we're not a safe person to confess to? We're not a safe person to, to, to tell people our struggles, right? 
Not only does the church need to be a safe place. Listen, you're the church. And when you're at your work, you're the church. And when you're at your, your school, you're the church. And we have to be a safe place for people to come and grow in their relationship with God and grow with each other. Now, how in the heck do we do that? I'm, I'm glad you asked. Listen, if you're in this room, I said this last weekend, if we need to be praying, you need to be praying right now more than you've ever prayed in your entire life. The world is insane. And I hate to break it to you, I don't think it's gonna get any better. So we have got to be praying. You need to be praying for you. You need to be praying for your friends, for your family, for your spouse, for your kids. Whoever is near you, you need to be praying God's protection over them. Not just praying for them, listen. So prayer protects us, right? I believe God protects us. I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about spiritually, emotionally, our hearts, our minds. We also protect our mind with this book, which means we need to be reading this book. Listen, I call news fear porn, that's what it is, right? That's how they make all their money. They keep us scared to death. And so there are so many people who are anxious and struggling and confused and we don't know what truth is and we don't know what to listen to. This is truth. This is truth. You do not have to live in hopelessness or fear or anxiety because this, this book talks about a love that casts those things out. And when we know the truth, right? It's like whenever you, you, you watch those crazy YouTube videos and people are like, hey, uh, God told me he's coming back Thursday, right? Everyone should be prepared on Thursday. Because Jesus said, if anyone said, I'm coming at this time, or look, he's in the wilderness, Jesus said, don't listen to them. So whenever you hear someone predict a date, you can bet everything you own that it's not gonna happen on that date. But Jesus already said this, but we don't know the truth unless we've read the words of God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 tells us what the world is gonna look like the closer Jesus comes back to, to, to when he returns. Whenever people say it's gonna get better, Jesus said, nope. It's gonna be like labor pains. That doesn't sound great, right? Those of you women understand. There's gonna be wars and rumors of wars, famines. People are gonna be killing each other and people are gonna turn away from the Lord and all these things. Matthew chapter 24, he talks about it. But we don't know the truth Unless we've, unless we've dove into the truth, right? Dived into the truth, whatever that is. So we need, to be, we need to pray protection through prayer. We need to be protecting our minds with the truth of God's word. And then we need to be doing what the word tells us to do. The Bible also says, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you don't need to be in fear of the government. Did you know that's in this book? You don't have to be afraid of the law if you're doing what God wants you to do. You don't have to be afraid of people around you if you are doing what God wants you to do. And this builds a wall, builds a hedge, it builds protection around us. So let's talk about our commitment to the word of God. Because in these chapters we read today, man, people listening to the word of God five, seven hours a day. But I know what you're probably thinking, like, you just don't have time. If you get on your iPhone and swipe right and scroll up a little bit, it'll tell you how much time you spend on your phone. After you check that, send me an email about how much time you don't have to read the Bible. Even on your commute to work, guys, you can download the YouVersion app for free and it will read the Bible to you. It'll read it to you. It's another way to get it. Well, I fall asleep when I read. Well, then have Morgan Freeman read it to you on the Bible on disc and, you know, win-win, right? So like, there's all these different ways you can get it. So are we taking the time to read the word of God? It's important. 
Are we taking the time to not just read it, but, but actually study it a little bit, meditate on it, think about it, right? The promises and the truths that are in this book, the encouragement. I remember the worst times in my life, I would bust open the Psalms and I would walk around and make laps around my house and just read the Psalms because I couldn't pray because I was frustrated, my head wasn't clear, but I know that these words are true. So I would just walk around and read the word, read it out loud, right? Neighbors probably thought I was a nut. Are we committed to the word? Now, here's the big question. If we say, yes, we're committed to the word, then the second big question is, how will we respond to the word? Will we just be offended by it? Will we defy it, right? Because it contradicts our desires and what we want? Or will we humble ourselves? You know, it's crazy to me. There are so many Christians that, that try to argue that they can live in sinful patterns but still be a follower of Jesus. It's like saying that, it's like someone saying that I have a black belt, but I've never stepped foot in a dojo, right? I've, I've, it's just not true. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. And if we say that we follow Jesus Christ, but we don't do anything that the Bible tells us to do, actually, Jesus addressed that in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. So we have so many people right now that don't read the word of God, don't know what it says, purely out of willful, willful ignorance, right? And they say they're followers of God, but, but they're not. We just have to call it for what it is. Again, that's why Jesus said a tree will be known by its fruit. And we can say all day long that we're apple trees, but if there's only oranges on the tree, we're not apple trees. And the same thing applies with our faith, guys, if we're just being honest. So if we have a commitment to the word, it means we also have to address sin. I hope sin still bothers you. I hope that if you make a mistake and fall into sin, I hope that it makes you nauseous because there are consequences to sin. Do we still believe that? I mean, really, do we? Because again, let me take you back to Jesus, the one we, we claim to follow. Jesus said that if a tree doesn't produce fruit, the tree is cut down and thrown into a fire. What in the heck do you think he was talking about? I don't believe in hell. Well, Jesus did. There are consequences for living a rebellious life against God. Do we still believe it? Not just eternal consequences. It'll mess up your marriage. It'll mess up your relationship with your kids. It'll mess up your relationship with your neighbor. It'll mess you up. Do we still believe it? Or do we try to justify our sin, right? Everyone does it. Well, then everyone needs to repent. Are we the ones constantly talking about those, those people that commit sexual sin over there, but we're gossiping in the name of venting to our friends? And Paul, back to 1 Corinthians chapter six, he equates gossiping with haters of God. So are we saying that sexual sin is really, really bad, but my verbal sin of gossiping and slandering, well, you know, I'm just talking with my friends. Do we create a hierarchy of sin? All sin will separate you from God, all of it, right? And we do that though because it makes us feel less evil because my sin's not nearly as bad as your guy's sin, right? But here's the thing about sin. I said it earlier, the realization that we are depraved is the greatest news you will ever hear, right? The realization that the, there is no way we can earn our way to heaven, that is the most liberating thing you will ever hear that God loved us so much he sent his only son to die so we would never have to die spiritually, that we could live forever. Again, not because we have earned it, 
but because a perfect savior has already bought and paid for it for us. We just have to pick it up. It is the greatest news you will ever hear. Are you saying I'm not good? Yes, but Jesus is perfect. And if you lean on him, right? Jesus looked at his imperfect disciples and he said, man, in my house are many mansions. If that wasn't the truth, I wouldn't have told you. And I'm gonna go and prepare that place for you, right? That's amazing. He knew that all his, his disciples were gonna make mistakes. Peter denied him three times, all this crazy stuff. But we understand we're depraved, but we understand that God loves us through our depravity and gives us his Holy Spirit to help us. And he forgives us because of the, the blood he shed on the cross. That is good news. To understand that we are fallible and he is infallible is wonderful, wonderful news. Wonderful news. But what it all equates to is this. We have to know who we are. I'm really proud of myself for this, this next paragraph. So again, we have made an idol of identity in our culture. We find our identity in everything. Again, political affiliation, color of our skin, um, sexual preference, gender, occupation, uh, education level, anything. We, we can make an idol out of everything, right? Right? And we keep going and going and going and we've created kind of these like our personal realities where we can make things whatever we want to do because we're searching for some kind of significance. We're searching for some kind of value and here's why identity and the conversation of identity is so important. Look at this. Because where we find our identity will also be where we derive our value. Let me say it one more time. Whatever you identify with will be where you find your worth from. That's why there are literally people killing themselves when they don't get enough likes on Instagram or Facebook. That happens, right? That's why people obsess about getting the right angle every single time to make sure that the people out in this virtual world think that I look like this or have achieved this lifestyle because our value comes from our identity in social media. That when it's all about making sure that we live up to our neighbors and drive this car so we get into mountains of debt and we're house poor and all these things because we think our value is in the neighborhood we live in or the car that we drive or our master's degree or our PhD or whatever the heck it is. And the problem with us identifying in those things and finding our value from those things is those things are moving targets. They're constantly changing. What is chic in 2021 is not gonna be chic in 2041. So if I have find my value in this, right? For instance, if you find your value in your looks, in your good looks, if you're young in here, I hate to tell you, it only gets worse as time goes on. I'll show you 1998 Corey and 2021 Corey that you already see, right? There's a big difference. But that's the problem. So what that, what that boils down to is we have to ask ourselves, does what I find my identity in stand the test of time? Is it eternal? And the Bible makes it clear. All those things will pass away. <laughs> All of them will pass away. The only thing that stands, the, un, the only unshakable thing that we can place our identity in is the creator of all things. It is the only source of, of, of pure joy. It is the only source of fulfillment. It is the only source to truly be free. If I lose my house, if I lose the job, man, if some radical takes my head, 
You cannot take my heart. You cannot take my relationship with God. And I wake up in paradise, right? It is complete freedom to know that there is no one that we have to keep up with or impress, right? There is one person that we need to live by the standards of, and it's not a human. And there's so much liberation in identifying with God. There's so much freedom in identifying with God. So maybe that's the question. If, you're, if, if you and I are honest today, what have we put our identity in? What have we found our identity in? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Hey, listen, if you are in this place and, and maybe you're new to the faith, maybe you're not a Christian at all yet. If so, I'm really, really glad you're here. Up here on my right, your left, is Pastor Mike. If you would like to, to talk to Mike, if you would like to ask him any questions, if you'd like to maybe get coffee with one of our pastors, or any, we're not afraid of questions, guys. Please, come up here and, and talk to Mike. If you need prayer for anything in your life, anything at all, there are men and women on both sides of the stage. If you wanna confess something, of course, we can't forgive your sins, but we can pray with you and you can ask God to forgive your sins. If you, if you wanna pray with someone or have someone pray with you, please come up here on the right, right or left of the stage and let someone pray with you for anything. The last thing is this. <clears throat> if you are a Christian in this room and if you have asked God to forgive you of your sins, there's communion all the way around the room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, all the way around the room, okay? There's bread and wine on those tables that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. All the stuff I was talking about today, that God loved you and I so much that he would give his only son to pay the price for our sins to pay the price, to open up the door so you and I can find our identity in God. So one day you and I can live in paradise with God, not because we've earned it, but because he loves us and has shown us grace and mercy. I wanna invite you guys, you're welcome to get communion here in a minute after I pray for you. And just sit and really think about that, the body and blood of Jesus given for you. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I thank you so much for this church. God, I love this church. God, I pray that you keep all the men and women in this place safe, Lord, all the children that are in this building, God, the middle schoolers, Lord, all the people watching at home, God. I pray that you protect their minds, protect their hearts and emotions, protect their physical bodies, God, keep them healthy. Lord, I pray that you give us endurance and strength. God, I pray, Lord, that we can find our identity in you and in that, that we can be liberated, God, that we can find freedom in that, Jesus. God, we love you. We love you so much and I love these people, Lord. Be with us until we meet again and we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.